The Guardian. On Location, a series of podcasts on literature and landscape. This is a hugely puzzling landscape and it's encrypted in all sorts of ways, but it's also an almost impossible landscape to read. Robert McFarlane, writer. It's very particular coast in the sense of being made of, of shingle and sand and stuff that's easily dispersed and easily reorganised. It kind of slips into the sea and there are points where land and sea are pretty much indistinguishable. Orford Ness, Suffolk. Um, but, but it is also a fortress coast. I mean, it's, it's, the, 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 it's a paranoid coast. It's defended itself against invasions that have not come for centuries now. And that's why when W.G. Zebelt comes here, or his narrator comes here in The Rings of Saturn, he's appalled and troubled because it, 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 this site kind of condenses alarm for him in its architecture, in its encryptions. Jetty, having just landed on Orford Ness. A lot of warehouses around here with bits of derelict farm machinery and rusting old boats moored up on the, the jetty. So Orford Ness, it's the largest offshore vegetated shingle spit in Europe and it looks like an island, but it's a, it's a great sort of tapering bracket to the Suffolk coast. On its inland is marshes and on its east side is, is shingle. In the First World War, it was acquired by, as it were, the Ministry of Defence and was used for testing weaponry, particularly bombfall. It then had a long career as a test site for various kinds of ordnance, including it became the Atomic Weapons Research Establishment and big bombs were tested, stress-tested here. One of the things I was thinking about, Rob, was... um, how very small one feels in this landscape. It's, it's a landscape which has a curious way of sort of flattening you. And I always think, you know, the sort of human form becomes very, very sort of insignificant. Um, and I was wondering how a lot of landscapes that, that are probably the most important in British national identity are actually landscapes which are about heroic engagement. You know, you climb the mountain and you conquer the, la- the landscape. And, uh, um, of course, that sort of heroic engagement of landscape is something you've thought a lot about in terms of you're looking at mountains. It's also a very kind of male response to landscape. And I just wondered, really, what you felt here, because this is not a very familiar landscape to you. You know, it's very flat, and you tend to like big mountains. (laughs) No, well, I mean, the the romantic heritage gives us two versions of of human presence in the landscape. And one is, as you say, the the heroising, self-affirming, Caspar uh, David Friedrich, uh, traveller above a sea of clouds, the frock-coated visionary standing and outstanding in, in the landscape. But the other is one of dispersal of self. I mean, this is as much part of, 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 of the Romantic tradition uh, as, as the heroising version um, and contacts with sublime nature. So I, I think I said somewhere in Mountains of the Mind, people who climb mountains are half in love with themselves and half in love with oblivion. Um, and um, so so coming to a landscape that is continually dispersing and reassembling itself, and that, as you say, flattens out the presence of the human. Um, seems, um, I mean, I, I, 
is a, is a different kind of interesting, really. I, I kind of wonder if that isn't what makes this such a sort of popular visiting place. People come here for day trips, and I, I, I sometimes wonder whether that isn't precisely because of that sense that, that they can get here of dispersal, of kind of insignificance, that they come here actually looking for that sense of space uh, and in, insignificance, often, you know, a perfect antidote to kind of urban stress. Yeah, well, I, th- I, I mean, people come to Orford in the nest for all sorts of different reasons, in in search of secrets um, or in search of the picturesque. You know, there's a, there's a full range available to you, and as you say, there's a kind of East Coast sublime. There's a there's a there's a marshland sublime at work out here as well, where you do. It's a landscape composed of, of perpendiculars, of verticals meeting horizontals, and you become as a walker, one of those verticals, you're about the same height as the Phragmites reed, which grows to about six feet. Um, and uh, in that sense, there, you you just enter a, a very rectilinear, highly geometrically organised space. Um, it's sort of become part of it, I suppose. This is a, 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 a subtle... Uh, elusive uh, landscape to to come to terms with. I mean, you can come to Orford and not see Orford Ness. There is a, a, a thin sliver of it is visible. It is this invisible, inaccessible, secret site. I mean, it is such a, a, an intense place to be. And I, I mean, I, I can think of. I mean, I've been over with many people over the years, and the reactions ha- have been considerable I mean we, we've talked about Zebelt's breakdown or the Zebelt's carrots breakdown I, I mean I went over with a Palestinian friend he was deeply troubled he saw a militarized landscape he saw a, a, a Middle Eastern desert still littered with the debris of war but for him it was a very live landscape it hadn't been decommissioned in the way that we think it has been decommissioned and when when you're looking at ruins there are two broad ways we can see them as alluding to, to past events but now effectively um, dilapidated and, and inert or we can see the ruin as a dormant present something that could be reactivated and brought back to life at some future point um, and I think for most English people coming over here this is a Cold War relic this is a, an era that is now gone, this is effectively a, a junkyard museum um, but for Raja uh, it was it was very much a live site um, that was that was oddly and completely unexpectedly and powerfully um, in common with his own, the landscape he'd left behind. The, um, coming through the desert, and uh, we're approaching lab. What number? Lab two in front of us. So uh, there's Duncan Kent, who's a, um, a warden out here on Orford Nest. And do we know what went on in what kind of tests went um, on in here? There was a centrifuge built in here, which I believe when it was built was the largest centrifuge in the world. But um, it probably was added in later because of the way that the lab was constructed. So it may have been originally built as an assembly building um, for putting Blue Danube together prior to it being tested in Lab 1. And Blue Danube was... was the 
first British nuclear atomic weapon. Duncan, I'm just kind of trying to work out when were these things uh, built. You're talking about Blue right, Danube so would have been what date? That one was built um, from 1953, and the uh, first test on a British nuclear weapon here was in 1956. So they were intimately involved with a whole series of nuclear weapons tests that were going on between sort of 56 and culminating in 58 with the Grapple Y test. Now out at basically the, the uttermost edge of the nest, the east, easterly point in the North Sea stretching away from us. There's a couple of con massive container ships on the far horizon that look basically like cities, island cities out there. It's the low sun late afternoon, big sea coming in, uh, shifting the shingle. And uh, we're standing in the, in the wind shadow of the lighthouse, great white and red candy striped lighthouse out here. And um, it's just a stunning place to be. But it doesn't look English, you know, it really doesn't. It could be, you know, some sort of desert landscape, American West or, or, or anywhere, which is utterly disorientating. We've stepped out of a picturesque Suffolk village into a desert yep. landscape. Yep, exactly. There's nothing like it. This is a kind of mysterious landscape. Well, there are many ways in which Orfordness won't, won't collaborate, won't, won't help anyone trying to make sense of it, let alone a writer. I've never been to a place that uh, shucks off interpretation as, as, as rapidly and as multiply as Orfordness. The first thing I was told as I was boated over here for the first time seven or eight years ago was never believe anything you're told about Orfordness. And of course it didn't take me long to realise that, that that was a version of the Cretan liar paradox. Should I or shouldn't I believe what it was that I'd just been told, i.e. that I shouldn't believe anything about Orfordness. You find how astonishingly unstable it is geologically, um, in terms of its kind of military infrastructure, which is, the, these are ruins, but ruin is an activity, it's not a state, uh, um, it, it's, it's always ongoing, but also in terms of fact, everything is fissile, everything gives way when you try and touch it, um, whether in terms of knowledge or in terms of the shingle under, underfoot, um, and so it's just astonishingly difficult to try and say anything about it. One of the results is that you try and make sense of it and you find weird order-making reasons for trying to explain how it came to be. Um, there are these shingle rows which allegedly take two centuries each to build. The, the nest is built out and then receded again in this curiously orderly fashion. And the shingle is graded in odd ways as well. People inevitably always ask me, you know, what, what, why are you so interested in place? And uh, the best explanation I've had is that phrase that Rebecca Solnit talks about which is that you know one people presume that to be so interested in place one's really sort of it's about situating oneself in space but she says actually it's much more to do with situating yourself in terms of time and I found that very very helpful because it seems to me that that has been you know a real preoccupation for me I find uh, trying to have some understanding of the past and how you know what's gone before is crucial to really kind of having any sort of purchase on the future um, as well as understanding you know why the present is the way it is but I wondered you know do you see it like that or do you see it differently how do you answer that perennial question well, well there's another phrase Rebecca Solnit has which is she says the, the mind is a landscape and walking a means of traversing it uh, and I suppose I'm particularly interested in the 
as it were, the, 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 the mindscapes that we construct out of our relations with certain places, either those we live in for a long time or those we powerful places we pass through and that leave marks upon us that uh, in some cases are indelible. Um, the, the, there is, I mean, certain landscapes are, you get this odd um, ab abolition of time actually, where, where side by side are relics from um, the, the millennia ago and yesterday. But I think when I first started writing about the Ness, I, I spent too long trying to make, make it make sense and trying to force it into a kind of order and, and, and compel it to yield secrets and sense to me. And I now realise that what is far more interesting is letting, letting it suggest its own texts and metaphors. Listen. Listen now. Listen again to the sounds of this slow-flowing shingle river. Listen to the voices of this untrue island. Listen to the ness. It speaks gull. It speaks wave. It speaks rust. It speaks lichen. Hear the ness. It speaks bullet. It speaks boonbill. It speaks ruin. It speaks red shank. It speaks deception. It speaks pagoda. It speaks transmission. It speaks reception. It speaks pure mercury. It speaks, it speaks fluid flint. flint. It speaks utmost secret. By night, you've seen coast guards patrolling for drugs, wardens out lamping for foxes and mink, fishermen bivvying right on the brink, fathers and sons, brothers and brothers, hunched on their boxes, testing for codling, for dogfish, for flatties, for smooth hound, for bass. Look there, the white hiss of storm lamp, the gold swing of torch beam, the red flare of rifle, the grey shift of shingle, and always, a stone-filled sea. Listen. Listen again. Listen inland to long-gone Orford Wood, which sings with the sounds of wildcat and brock, heroat and hind, doe and brock, hare and fox, wild fowl with his flock. Patrick peasant, pheasant cock, with green and wild stub and stock. Listen to the grasshoppers kept in jars to conjure the Chinese workers home. Listen to the wrench of the door in the centrifuge dome. Listen to the rumoured motion of the rumoured bodies against the rumoured shore. Listen to the lenses spin on mercury in the lighthouse orrery. High curved cries come from Curlew River. An east wind tightened silver bites its tongue. The spit mutters, rests, 
and crypts. Shivers. There are gulls in the pagodas and the birds are being rung. Light from old stars curls inland off the sea. The bomb building resounds to the distant note of D. For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio.